So let me do a little bit of recap for, for uh, what we covered last week. Actually, let me pray for us first. That would be appropriate. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning uh, to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time, that you would illumine our, your word to our hearts, that you would grow us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. Uh, we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we covered the second half of chapter one of 1 Timothy, uh, going through a six-week series on 1 Timothy. We are in week three this morning. And Paul, in chapter one, was reflecting on this incredible grace that God has shown him in redeeming him because of his opposition to the gospel. And so we looked at this fantastic progression we see in Paul's thinking about himself and about his own sin, uh, where he goes from saying in 1 Corinthians 15, that I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God, uh, to then saying in, in Ephesians, the, the very least of the saints, to then saying in 1 Timothy, I'm the foremost of sinners, I'm the worst of sinners. Um, and I think that experience actually should be normative for the believer, that as we grow in maturity, we, we, we become more aware of our sin and more in awe of how much God has done for us by forgiving us. And so our, our gratitude really comes from knowing how much we have been forgiven. And so Paul kind of erupts in praise in chapter 1 because of this grace that God has shown him. And Paul's salvation, too, is this testament to the reach of God's saving power, that no one is too sinful to save, no one is beyond uh, saving, uh, no one is too hardened in opposition, too strident a rebel to save, because God saved Paul himself, who was this great opponent of the church. And then at the end of chapter 1, Paul bolstered Timothy for the good warfare that he was to engage in in gospel ministry and gave him these warnings about falling away as other people have done. And we saw that gospel ministry is part of this cosmic struggle between God and the devil and that false teaching actually is fueled by demonic activity, which we'll get into in chapter 4. So then we started uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 last week. We covered most of the first paragraph talking about how prayer is foundational in the life of the believer, that God desires that we be a praying people, praying all types of prayers for all types of people, and especially for civil authorities that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. And then uh, Paul really tied the prayer and the quiet life to the salvation of the lost, that God uses even these ordinary means for the advance of the gospel, and that God has this great desire for salvation for the lost, for all types of people, both Jew and Gentile, in contrast with the exclusivity of the false teachers. All right, so this morning, we are going to really hone in on uh, verse 6 of chapter 2, which we did not cover last time, um, and then cover the rest of chapter 2. And (laughs) this section covers both limited atonement and male headship in the church, probably two of the most popular doctrines uh, that we have. And I realize it's also absolutely the height of folly to try and cover both of them in one week, especially a short week. But they're in the text, and so I want to at least give you a sense of them, and just know that there's a lot more that could and should be said on both topics. So, all right, with that said, let's read 1 Timothy 2. I'm going to read the whole paragraph, and then we'll hone in on verse 6. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. All right, so looking at verse 6, Paul's talking about Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself as the price that needed to be paid to secure redemption for God's people. Uh, we see similar language used in Mark 10:45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give him his life as a ransom for many. Right? Christ has redeemed us. He's bought, his, he's bought us back. He's paid the price of our sin that we might go free. That's the idea here with the word ransom. I think there's some really great Old Testament images that relate to this idea of redeeming someone, of ransoming them, of buying them back. Uh, We think of the kinsman redeemer. Hopefully many of you are familiar with that concept. This close relative who could redeem people or property, um, who had become destitute, they could buy them back. Or um, Hosea 3, I think, also is a great example of this, right? We have Hosea and Gomer. Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea, and then he goes in chapter 3, and he literally buys her back. He redeems her. And that's exactly what Christ has done for his people. So what does it mean for Christ to be the ransom for all, which is the language we see in 1 Timothy? I think this verse is probably one of the primary verses that people point to when disputing limited atonement or particular redemption. So it's worth understanding what's going on here. Really, to hi- my goal is to highlight the beauty of what Christ has done for us, to highlight the beauty of the atonement. But I want to unpack the, there's probably three ways to understand this. I'm going to talk through them briefly. So there's three ways you could take the word all here when it says Christ is a ransom for all. You could say that means uh, all means that Christ ransomed, he effectively saved all people. So this would be a universalist view. No one goes to hell, right? Everyone is going to heaven because Christ ransomed everyone. Second view, it's more of the Arminian view. All means that Christ died for everyone who has ever lived, but only those who embrace the offer of the gospel by faith are redeemed. And then the third view, the Reformed view, would say all refers to all kinds of people, the Jew and Gentile, as we were talking about last week which Christ will redeem from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But Christ gave himself as the ransom for the elect specifically rather than for every uh, single person who has ever lived. Obviously, I'm going to advocate for the Reformed view uh, this morning, and I do think it is actually most true to the text as well. We talked about this Greek word, all, that's used in this passage, and it can mean different things based on the context. So it could be used to mean every single one, uh, every individual, or it can be used to mean kind of representative of a group, all types, uh, all kinds. And so I believe that Paul is using it in that second sense all throughout this passage. So we see it used three times in this paragraph, uh, in 2.1 and 2.4 and 2.6. And I think it's used the same way in every single time. So 2.1, Paul isn't urging that we pray for every single person on the planet, which is not possible He's saying we should pray for all types of people, exemplified by the reference to the civil authorities. And then in 2.4 and 2.6, he's combating this Jewish exclusivity with the universal kind of scope of the gospel for the whole world by saying salvation is not just for Jews but for Gentiles as well. And that's exactly why he underscores this with verse 7 when he says, For this reason I was appointed as, as an apostle 
to the Gentiles. So all doesn't mean every person on the planet. So thinking through the three uh, views then, the universalist view, this is clearly not what scripture teaches. For the sake of time, I'm not really going to say anything more than that. But if anyone thinks that, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about it. So the second view, Christ died for all individuals, but not all will be saved. This is probably the most widespread and popular view of the atonement among evangelicals today. And so it would take this word all here to mean every single person. And there's some other supporting language that proponents of this view would point to, such as John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Christ coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And I think the argument, to really boil it down into a nutshell, is how could it be fair for God to create someone and not give them the chance to believe, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. God can't be good and create someone for condemnation, right? And it kind of stems from a rejection of uh, total depravity and a rejection of election that informs, I think, what is actually accomplished at redemption. So before we dive into some of those differences, there are actually are a couple interesting points of agreement, but they're, they're kind of nuanced. So I want to talk about that for a minute. So both believe in limited atonement, right? We kind of don't, we don't like the idea of limited atonement, but everyone who's not a universalist, so pretty much every evangelical, actually believes in limited atonement. The question is, what is limited, right? That's where the difference comes in. So the Armenian would say it's universal in scope, right? It's available for everyone because Christ died for all, but it's limited in efficacy, efficacy in the sense that only those who believe are saved, Right? And the Reformed view would say it's limited in scope, right? It's for the elect, but it's unlimited in efficacy. It saves to the uttermost. If you are elect, you cannot fail to be saved. Christ will absolutely bring you home. So that's, the, that's a difference there. But we would all affirm that all who believe are saved. That is absolutely true. That is what Scripture teaches. The crux of the difference there is are you saved? Are you redeemed because you believe? Or do you believe because you were redeemed? Does regeneration precede faith, or does it follow it? Are you dead in your sins, or are you just gravely ill? And so with that as a segue, let's talk about depravity briefly. I don't think an Arminian would use the term unregenerate, but this is kind of my language here. Uh, The idea is that uh, they would say it's possible to embrace the offer of salvation in an unregenerate state. Again, probably not using that kind of term, but... Uh, You're not dead in your sins in the sense of being unable to respond to the offer of the gospel of your own volition. Maybe that's a better way to put it. So what I believe is the biblical view is the idea that none can embrace the gospel unless you're regenerated, that we are actually incapable of any spiritual good, including responding to the offer of the gospel. So Romans 3, 10 to 12, coming back to uh, the idea of depravity. Uh, says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, quoting the Psalms there. So we're unable to love God, we're unable to act in faith. We have this spiritual inability. Uh, John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? You must be re- reborn first 
in order of priority. Or Ephesians 2, 1, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. A dead person can't respond. And so I think the biblical testimony is that if Christ's sacrifice only cleared the decks, and if we're up to you to then put your faith in Christ, you would never do it. We would never do it because of the corruption of our sinful natures. We don't actually choose God unless we're regenerated first. So there's this disagreement over depravity. And then, of course, there's a disagreement then over election. And so the Arminian view emphasizes free will and salvation, right? that I can choose God I can reject or reject God. Um, and the Reformed view would say God chooses you, right? That, that God is the initiator of salvation. Um, we think of Ephesians 1, 3 to 4, uh, where it says in verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose you. We have this electing purpose of the Father. Um, in Ephesians 2, later on in the same book, uh, verses 8 and 9, Paul says faith is a gift. Right? We believe because we're regenerated, we're given faith as a gift. Last week we talked about Matthew eleven twenty seven, this invisibility of God, that he has to reveal himself for us to be able to see him or um, interact with him in any way whatsoever. And John six forty four says that as well. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, and so we have this, this doctrine of effectual calling, right? That if God calls you, you will respond because he has elected you, he has called you, and he is sovereign over that. And so when we think about election, people struggle with the, fair, like the idea of fairness, right? Or it seems somehow unjust to us that God would choose some and pass by others for destruction. So I would commend to you Romans 9 on that front. Ro- Romans 9 is very clear, and it's something to wrestle over as we think about this topic. Paul, you know, God says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's really a, a blanket statement that God owns salvation. God is the author of salvation, right? He says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He gives the example of the potter and the clay, right? Who are you, a man, to speak back to God? So God chooses on whom he will have mercy, and it's not, um, it's not unfair for him to do so because mercy is generosity, right? Fairness, equity, justice would be that everyone goes to hell. And so God lavishes grace by, by um, saving some, and that is, that is an act of generosity, not an act of fairness. I think there's a helpful uh, quote here. Rick Phillips has a small book, kind of really a booklet, on the doctrines of grace called What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace?, And he says this. I think this is helpful to reorient our perspectives a little bit. It says, We are humanists, so we consider the highest well-being of the most humans to constitute the highest good, above even the glory of God's justice, wrath, and power. But God is a theist, and he thinks the highest good is the fullest display of his own glory. God ordains the condemnation of the reprobate, not only to show forth his justice and wrath, but also to to display his mercy and grace to us who equally deserve hell but receive salvation instead. Were no one ever condemned, were there no display of God's judgment and wrath, there would be no knowledge of the glories of God's grace. In that case, the true God would be unknown to his creatures. Right. So he's saying essentially that you, in order to understand mercy and what God has done for us, the grace he has shown, you actually need the, the wrath and the condemnation as well. Otherwise, it's not mercy. 
And furthermore, I love what he said at the end there, the true God will be unknown. If God did not display the full breadth of his attributes, we wouldn't actually know God as he is. So the one question to consider, and Rick mentioned this in his book as well, is what is God's intent for redemption, right? What did he intend to accomplish on the cross? Was it to make salvation possible, or was it to actually redeem people? Was God's goal in sending Christ to remove obstacles that stood in the way of salvation, or was it something more? And so this second view, the Arminian view, would say it makes salvation possible, um, and that effect, effectively uh, actually puts the onus of salvation on man, right? It makes it up to human will uh, to secure salvation, right? Salvation isn't actually secured on the cross. It's secured when I believe. That's when it is effectively applied. Um, and so Christ's work in and of itself doesn't actually reconcile anyone to God, uh, which is one of, one of the big problems, I think, with that view. It's like um, Christ came for you with a lifeboat. You're drowning in the ocean. Christ comes for you with a lifeboat, and he throws you a line, but you still have to reach out and grab it, right? That's essentially what it's saying. And so the, the, um, if you take that view to its logical conclusion, it would actually have been possible for Christ to have died completely in vain because no one might have reached out and grabbed the line. So in addition to uh, raising some concerns about you know, the perfection of God's nature in terms of his sovereignty, it also uh, questions God's justice, I think. Uh, we, th- we, we know that some are saved, but some are not, right? Not all are saved. And so Christ's blood is the payment of that debt we owe to God, right? So Christ pays that debt to God to secure pardon from his wrath. So if Christ has died for all, if God has then received that payment for all, but doesn't forgive everyone and instead holds some under wrath, that would be injustice on God's part. And so we believe that Christ died for the elect specifically and that his sacrifice actually accomplishes atonement. That you were dead, you're unable, unable, incapable of any uh, spiritual good, including embracing the gospel. But God's intent was to fully redeem his people through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Um, and so we see actually a limiting of scope, right, consistent with this view in Scripture. Um, Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for whom? For the transgression of my people, right? He's, he's, he's uh, focusing Christ's work on the cross to my people, to God's people. Um, and similarly, we read Mark ten forty five earlier, said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, and so we, we read the, um, the whole world passages in John earlier, um, and I, w- I think those mean exactly what First Timothy means, that he's saying it's inclusive of Gentile nations. So when he says, not for ours only, but for the whole world, he's saying not just for ethnic Israel, but for Jew and Gentile alike. And then John 10 is so clear and helpful on this point. Uh, verses 14 through 15, Christ says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep, right, for the sheep specifically. And not all are the sheep, right? So verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right, so not all are his sheep. In John 8, Christ actually calls uh, some of the Jews who are opposing him sons of the devil, right, instead of sons of the Father. So we have this clear divide of who are God's people and who are not. Um, so we have scope, and then we've got efficacy as well. And I think John speaks to the efficacy in verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, right? There's this idea that it will most definitely happen. Uh, we see that in John 17, uh, 1 as well, the high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It doesn't sound like it's in doubt at all. It sounds like it is secure, that Christ has actually secured his pardon, or secured pardon for his people, that they will inherit eternal life. Um, And Hebrews 9 Uh, 11 through 12, and verse 12 specifically, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Right. So that speaks to the effectiveness, that it is secured by Christ's blood, by his sacrifice. And so Christ has actually secured redemption for the elect. He has paid the ransom. The transaction is 100% complete. And so we believe that salvation is, is really nothing less than resurrection from the dead, that that is what is going on here. Uh, we think of Ezekiel 37, right, this great picture of uh, regeneration, of redemption, and it's the valley of dry bones, right? And so Ezekiel's looking out at this valley full of bones, and they're so dead, they're dry, right? There's not an ounce of soft tissue on them. And God comes, and he breathes his Holy Spirit into them and gives them life, right? And so that is the picture of what is going on here. And so implications for us as we think about this, right? This is why we sing. This is why we worship. This is why we love our God because he has done it all, right? He has done everything for us. And this is why we have assurance of salvation, right? God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He is immutable. He doesn't change. And he has secured our redemption in Christ, and so we can't lose our salvation by how we're feeling one day to the next. We can't lose our salvation by ebbs and flows in our faith. Uh, your salvation is secured. It's on a secure footing because of these doctrines. And I hope you see as well that all these doctrines really fit together. Right? You can't take one out without kind of messing with the whole. And they are meant for the comfort and the encouragement of the church. Right? The fact that we know that Christ has secured our pardon gives us the highest reason and motivation to suffer patiently in this life, right, as we wait for him to return, uh, to fight the good fight of the faith, as Paul is encouraging Timothy. And it also, I think, actually uh, gives us reason to share the gospel with confidence, right? This doctrine is not, um, it, it shouldn't dampen any kind of, you know, evangelical missionary zeal, right? You think of Paul, incredibly zealous, right, for the salvation of the lost, particularly the Gentiles. And he firmly believed this, right? He wrote these words in scripture. 
Um, and so the fact that we know that God has definitively determined to save his people means that we should actually go and preach and share the word with confidence because we know that some of those who hear who are elect will respond to the offer of the gospel and that God uses his church for the advance of the gospel. So let's move on to verses 8 through 10. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All right, so... Paul is returning, or we are returning to Paul's theme of prayer that he's been addressing in chapter 2. And he says, in every place, in verse 8, in every place the men should pray. So wherever believers meet together, uh, the corporate worship of the church should be characterized by praying, by men praying. Uh, The church should have this dedication to prayer wherever it meets. So I'm going to challenge you this morning, when we go into the, uh, the worship service um, in a few minutes here, I want you to count up the number of times that we pray and see what number you come up with. It should be quite a lot. Uh, But Paul here contrasts this act of prayer with anger and quarreling. Um, And anger toward one another is the default reaction of um, sinful human nature to other sinners, right? We we love ourselves. We hate anyone who offends us. And since we're sinners, we're going to offend each other all the time, right? So anger and quarreling is kind of the default state between people uh, who are in sin. But uh, praying praying together has this uniting effect, so there's this opposite here. Quarreling is also increased by the emphasis of the false teachers on speculation and vain discussion, as Paul talks about elsewhere in 1 Timothy. Um, so this quarreling can arise over you know, trivial topics. But instead of being marked by quarreling, uh, Paul is saying the men of the church should be devoted to prayer. This is what should characterize the child of the God, the child of God and the men of the church is that they pray. Um, And I was thinking about Ephesians 6, right? We have this great passage talking about putting on the armor of God. And then the the kind of offensive action that we take at the end of that passage is prayer. That's that's how we fight. That's that's what Paul uh, gives us, right? We get on our knees for our wives, for our church, for our family, for ourselves. This is how we fight the good fight of the faith. Uh, Prayer is also a mark of humility. Uh, We pray because we're unable to bring about what we desire, right? We are... We are literally powerless, right? So we pray to the one who has all power um, to do what only he can do. It's this explicit acknowledgement that we are powerless and that God is almighty. Um, When Paul says lifting holy hands, uh, that is a posture of prayer in Scripture. I'm not going to read all these for time, but this is another way of saying prayer. All throughout Scripture, when we see people uh, lifting their hands or spreading hands, it's in prayer. All right, so moving to uh, verses 9 and 10, addressing the women. He says, The Christian woman's adorning should be modesty and self-control and good works. Uh, When he says modesty here, he's talking about uh, modesty versus extravagance or versus uh, dressing ostentatiously, not modesty that refers to wearing enough clothing so that you're not scantily clad. Uh, What he's saying here is that the, um, and the, the context is worship, right? So we're talking about the church gathering together for worship. 
And so what does it say about someone if they come dressed to the nines in super gaudy clothing, right? Are they there to be seen by others, or are they really there to worship God? Because that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? So that kind of clothing choice calls attention to self, uh, but we come together, it's to make much of God. Um, it would also be possible to distract the saints if you come underdressed, like you come in your pajamas or something. Uh, so the idea is we're to approach God with reverence and awe, as Hebrews 12 says. We dress appropriately uh, for the occasion, um, and Paul is saying that should be simple and appropriate dress, and when he's urging modesty here. But modesty is uh, one, one outward kind of sign of inner self-control. Right? Self-control is this inner character quality that matches that outward modesty. Uh, self-control is the ability to control one's speech or actions. Uh, we should not be ruled by our emotions or ruled by our passions, and this quality is absolutely necessary for the child of God uh, when I was studying First Peter last year, I was struck by how many times it comes up in First Peter. He mentions it over and over again, this need for self-control, and it's contrasted with the self-indulgence of sinful society around us. So we are, are temperate, we're moderate, we're not given to excess, and the world, by contrast, is ruled by its appetites, is prone to self-indulgence and excess, but the child of God is not to be that way. And so Paul here is specifically addressing self-control in the way that we dress. And then finally, good works. That Good works most often means obedience in Scripture, obedience to, to the word, to the law. Here I think he's especially focused on service to others, and that's a similar context to 1 Timothy 5, which talks a lot about service. Um, but the goal should be to please the Lord by being devoted to what he loves rather than devoting ourselves to vanity. Um, and there's a really close parallel passage in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, where he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So Peter's not saying that it's immoral to dress nicely or wear jewelry but that women should be characterized by modesty and good works rather than by self-aggrandizement, that this is what marks them, this is what they're about. They're not caught up in the world's status symbols, uh, but they care about what God cares about, which is the church. So they should be more concerned to use their time and energy and resources uh, for piety and charity for the good of the church than for themselves. And the underlying attitude, I think, that's being contrasted in both Paul's exhortation to the men and the women is pride versus humility. Right? So pride seeks to receive praise and adoration uh, from others. Pride elevates itself through these status symbols. And of course, the way we dress has been a status symbol forever. We're concerned with how others view us, right? So we put on the gold and the jewelry so they know how great we are. And on, on, for the men as well, pride really fuels anger. Pride is a main uh, you know, motivator, driver of anger uh, when we're offended, and so uh, obedience and service and prayer, by contrast, are marks of humility, right? Service thinks more of the needs of others than ourselves. Um, just like anger and the need for prayer isn't unique to men, uh, but men are often more characterized by anger, so also vanity is not unique to women, but women tend to care more about how they dress, I think. I think that's why Paul, you know, parses the two exhortations that way. Of course, all believers should be marked by prayer, by humility, by good works, by self-control. Move on to our last few verses here. 
verses 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the context here is continuing public worship, as we've been talking about earlier in chapter 2. Um, and so Paul says, uh, learn quietly. And what does that mean? I think he clarifies in verse 12 uh, that he's talking about learning as opposed to teaching. When he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Um, so he's saying that women are explicitly restricted from teaching men in church, right, in the corporate worship of the church. Uh, this includes preaching and teaching. Um, and I want to point out that teaching has always been limited in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, James 3.1 says, let not many of you be teachers, right? Those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So just being a man is not qualification enough to teach either. Um, it's never been, you know, an open playing field. Uh, but what does it mean when he says um, exercise authority? I think there's two ways this plays out. Uh, one is that women should not hold positions of authority over men in the church. So we think of church office specifically. And we'll talk about the qualifications for elders and deacon next week. Um, and then secondly, uh, women should not perform acts of spiritual authority over men in the church, which includes preaching and teaching here. Um, and I also want to comment that this says specifically over a man, right? So that's the, the object there, that women are not allowed to teach or have authority over men in the church, and it's specific to men. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, women are positively encouraged to teach other women. So we think of Titus 2, uh, 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Right, so Paul is positively exhorting women with teaching capabilities, older women, uh, to, uh, to be actively engaged in teaching other women, and that is the proper outlet um, for those abilities. Um, Paul, I think, is uh, expecting pushback on this, perhaps, and so he immediately gives uh, some reasons why, you know, why this prohibition. So he says two things in verses 13 and 14. Um, in verse 13... He says, Adam was formed first. Adam was formed first. <laughs> so Paul is going back to Genesis. He's going back to the creation order. Um, and I think two, or Genesis 2, 15 through 25 are helpful. Um, but he's explaining this rationale for the God-given leadership role that he's given to men in uh, the home and in the church. And so he lists this order of creation that Adam was created first, and so uh, given ultimate responsibility for the creation and for the marriage relationship. Um, we see that God places Adam in the garden. He gives him the command to work it and to keep it before Eve is created. Um, Adam's still alone when he begins the work by naming the animals. And then finally God creates Eve, and he says at last in Genesis 2.23, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We have this order of events prior to the fall, uh, which Paul is saying here endows Adam with this primary responsibility to fulfill God's command at God's design and, ha and gives men this leadership role. 
Um, Eve is called a helper in Genesis 2.18. She is to assist him in fulfilling the garden mandate. Um, Adam names Eve in Genesis 2.23, which is an act of authority over her. And then God holds Adam responsible for sin and for the fall in Genesis 3. Um, We also see in the New Testament that all the New Testament authors affirm this created order after Christ, right? So they don't reverse this ordering of society, but they actually affirm it, Uh, which if it was, so one of the arguments is, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a result of the fall, right? And Paul is saying here, no, it's not. It's actually part of God's good design. So we have God's design, and then he says in verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Uh, This, I think, can be a little tricky and hard to understand, from what I've read, um, I think the, the most common interpretation understands this to speak to kind of natural, uh, broad tendencies and inclinations of men and women, right? So men and women have equal intellectual abilities, equal value and worth before God, uh, but there's some differences in disposition that I think Paul is getting at. Um, and so one of those is that men in general, I think, have a, have a desire to protect the doctrinal purity of the church, to, to parse truth from error, and I'm not saying women don't have that, but they generally tend to have a more kind of relational and inclusive emphasis that promotes unity and community in the church. And so, Paul, or, so women may be less skeptical on the whole uh, in order to promote that unity and community. And so in this world full of false teaching, like the environment, you know, First Timothy is in, and like the church has been really throughout all ages— that skepticism is really necessary to avoid error. So both emphases are needed, uh, but what Paul is getting at is that the gentler side of Eve might have made her less susceptible uh, or more susceptible to the serpent and less inclined to oppose him. Um, Other examples or reasons for uh, male leadership in the church, Uh, we have the example of the Old Testament Levitical uh, priesthood, um, this, is, this is not a new idea in the New, or in the new Testament, rather, but has really been God's pattern from the beginning. So we think of the priesthood uh, as restricted to Aaron and his sons, right? They're offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, we have teaching people the law. Uh, Nehemiah 8 is an ex- example of Ezra reading the law and the Levites going around and explaining to people what it means. Uh, the priesthood was only for male descendants of Aaron, uh, similarly, the Levites, uh, only the males would go and serve in the tabernacle. Between the ages of 30 and 50, they would come and assist the priests and care for the tabernacle. Uh, in the New Testament, we have the apostles. Right, Christ appointed 12 apostles, 12 disciples and then apostles. Uh, really 14, I guess, if you count Matthias and Paul. And every single one of them was a man. And I don't think that's an accident. And Christ also is not a chauvinist, right? So there's something bigger that's going on in these role distinctions that we see. Um, and the same is true for the deacons, right? We see the deacons appointed in Acts 6-3, and they chose seven men. And you might think, well, the, you know, the context of that is widows being overlooked in distribution. So why not choose widows to do that? That would make sense. Uh, but I think what they're saying is that the office of deacon has this spiritual authority to it. And so very, very briefly, uh, why these role distinctions, right? Why has God created this parsing, right, where he's, set, he's appointed men to have a leadership role in the family and in the church and not women? Um, and I think there's a, a few reasons, right? 
uh, he, it's this sovereign creation ordinance, and it's rooted in the Trinitarian nature of God and how he has created men and women uh, to be a picture of Christ in the church. Um, so we see role distinctions from the very beginning. They're, they're part of how we are made in the image of God. God says in Genesis 1 that he created them male and female. So he, he created gender, right? It was God's idea. And he's creating this distinction in men and women right from the beginning and how we fulfill uh, the God-given mandate to rule and to subdue the earth for his glory and how we function as a church. Uh, we see in the Trinity that there's these interesting role distinctions that really come out, especially in redemption. We think of different roles that members of the Trinity take in redemption uh, with voluntary submission between them, yet they're all equally God, right? So Christ voluntarily submits to the will of the Father. Uh, he comes to earth, takes on flesh, offers himself as a sacrifice, um, and he is the one who does that, right? The Father doesn't offer himself as a sacrifice, nor does the Spirit, but only the Son. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He comes and dwells believers and regenerates them, convicts them of sin. And the Spirit does that work, right? Not Christ or the Father. And so we, di- we see these role distinctions, these functional distinctions between members of the Trinity. And I think that role distinctions between men and women reflect that reality to some degree. Um, and then finally, we have Christ and the church. And uh, so Christ, Christ is not the church, right? They are different entities. The church is different from Christ. And so if men and women uh, in marriage are this picture of Christ in the church, then we should actually expect that men and women have different roles as well. There's some difference there, just like Christ and the church are not the same entity. All right, and then finally, verse 15 This one can be a little bit confusing as well. Uh, Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And one of the the points of confusion here is that we have this word save, right, in our English Bibles, and it's used in different ways. And we tend to think of save as justification, at least I do. I read save and I think justification, you know, most often. And that is not what Paul is talking about here. He's not advocating for some kind of like, works-based righteousness based on the number of children that you have you know, as justifying you before God. Um, I think probably a better way to think of this is sanctification, right? that women have the curse working against them in their uh, efforts to fulfill their God-ordained roles. And Paul is saying that they will honor God and they will be spiritually blessed by embracing those roles. And childbearing is a brief way of summarizing the biblical roles that God has given women of being faithful wives and mothers, raising their children in the Lord, managing their households well. And so Paul's point is that women should focus on their God-given roles um, rather than attempting to find their true selves in some sort of libertarian individualism uh, or pursuing leadership roles in the church. Um, And it's actually interesting, there's all these tie-ins to false teaching that uh, Paul is addressing here. And one of the one aspect of false teaching um, was often that marriage and family should be abandoned for more spiritual pursuits. And so we actually see that in church history taken to an extreme form in the monastic movement. Um, and instead, Paul is saying that women will really work out their salvation, Philippians 2.12, through their God-ordained roles as wives and mothers, whether raising children or being mothers in the church, right, who edify the body by caring for the afflicted or showing hospitality. 
Uh, so he's saying essentially that by accepting this sphere, these God-ordained roles, the godly woman fulfills her created purpose to the glory of God and really for the great good and benefit of the church. So there's a positive um, emphasis here. I know it feels all like prohibition, but I think there really is a positive emphasis at the end um, that, that you know, we can see the, the fruit of this faithfulness even in the existence of this letter. Does anyone remember where Timothy's faith was fostered or how? Yeah, his, his mom and his grandmother, right? Their dedication to raising Timothy in the Lord is an example of the kind of impact that mothers can have in training their children for godliness. Um, in our society, right, we tend to equate um, doing the same thing with having equal dignity, and I just don't think that's the biblical view of reality, right? That in the biblical framework, there can be functional distinctions and equal value and equal worth, and so we need to, we need to embrace that. Um, further, leadership in the church is not... Um, it's not about having special status. It's not about making the rules and have everyone else get in line. It's not a power trip. It's about sacrificial service. Uh, that is what it means to be a leader in the church. And so with just a couple of minutes left here, just really uh, briefly as we wrap up, um, we, as we think about ministry, right, and kind of the role of women in ministry, ministry is extremely broad in Scripture, Basically, anything that someone does for the church or for another individual believer is ministry. And so not all ministry is public or official. Most of it is not. Um, and so I think reducing ministry to just public leadership is kind of denigrating all the behind-the-scenes service that has happened um, throughout the ages for people who work behind the scenes for the good of the church and for the saints. And so there's a ton of good and helpful and needed work that can be done by women for the ministry. Um, the reality is there's actually very few restrictions um, placed on them, uh, just teaching men and then public leadership in the church. Uh, but we think of other things that need to happen, that uh, other roles that can be fulfilled. Uh, and I would say, you know, we've been talking about prayer throughout First Timothy 2. Prayer is huge. It's absolutely uh, probably the top priority, right? If we undervalue prayer, then our priorities are upside down. It's perhaps the most critical thing we can do. Uh, none of our efforts are, uh, none of our efforts will bear any fruit, right, unless God does the work. We can't accomplish anything. God has to do it, and so we should be a praying people. Um, explaining the Bible in informal settings, that's another thing uh, women can do. We think of Priscilla and Aquila took, taking aside Apollos. Um, that's a positive example of that. Um, there's a great need for women who can teach other women. We looked at Titus 2, and I think um, children's ministry falls under that as well, children and youth ministry. We need Sunday school teachers. That's a critical uh, role. Um, and then, of course, caring for physical needs in the body or even missions and evangelism or other causes of righteousness. And then wives and mothers, of course, as we talked about earlier. Uh, I, don't, I think that role is undervalued, and that's an absolutely essential uh, service to the church, right? Only you can be a mother to your children and a wife for your husband. Um, and the impact, the influence for good that a woman can have in fulfilling that role well is incalculable. All right, let me stop there and pray for us. I know we need to um, wrap up. We have some setup for the fellowship meal after this, so if you have a minute, please stick around and help us um, set up tables. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you. 
uh, for your goodness and your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that you have sent him to be a ransom, that you have fully redeemed us from our sins. Uh, We pray that you would give us grace, Lord, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.